Hello, this is Peter Shea, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 9th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This first article is called Under the Radar, Right-Wing Push to Tighten Voting Laws Persists. The clashes in state capitals have faded, but the Republican push for stricter state election laws is organized and planning for the long term. The first recent wave of legislation tightening voting laws came in 2021, when Donald J. Trump's false claims of voter fraud spurred Republican lawmakers to act over, to act over loud objections from Democrats. Two years later, a second wave is steadily moving ahead, but largely under the radar. Propelled by a new coalition of Trump allies, Republican-led le legislatures have continued to pass significant restrictions on access to the ballot, including new limits to voting by mail in Ohio, a ban on ballot drop boxes in Arkansas, and the shortening of early voting windows in Wyoming. Behind the efforts is a network of billionaire-backed advocacy groups that has formed a new hub of election advocacy, advocacy within the Republican Party rallying state activists, drafting model legislation, and setting priorities. The groups have largely dropped the push for expansive laws, shifting instead to a strategy one leader describes as radical incrementalism, a step-by-step -step approach intended to be more politically palatable than the broad legislation that provoked widespread protests in 2021. They haven't stopped trying to change how our elections are run, they're just doing it out of the spotlight, said Jonah Lidgate, Joanna Lidgate, the chief executive of States United, a nonpartisan election group. Some of the policies being promoted today will be, law in, will be law in time for next year's presidential election, she added, and American voters will feel the impact. Republicans have long said their goal is election integrity, but a spate of recent proposals suggest clear and sometimes strikingly specific political aims. National Republicans recently sought to change the rules for a single race in Montana for the U.S. Senate to tilt the scales toward the Republican candidate. In Ohio, Republican state lawmakers are seeking to make it harder to pass a ballot initiative, such as a coalition of abortion rights groups, just as a coalition of abortion rights groups is collecting signatures to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. On a recent conference call with activists in Michigan, Cleta Mitchell, one of the chief architects of the new coalition blamed electoral systems for the party's losses in midterm elections and not, as pundits have said, abortion messaging or poor candidates, according to a recording obtained by the New York Times. I think you have got to figure out what we have to do. Where to fix the system that gives a Republican candidate a potential chance to win, she said. Miss Mitchell declined to comment. Incrementalism at work. With some legislatures still in session, the full picture of new election laws is still coming into view. But this account of the state of the Republican campaign is based on documents, recordings, and meeting minutes provided by documented, provided by documented, a liberal investigative group, as well as on interviews and data analysis. So far this year, 18 bills in 10 states have been signed into law that will add new restrictions to voting or election administration, according to an analysis of data maintained by the Voting Rights Lab. During the same period in 2021, the tally was 16 restrictive bills in 11 states, 
according to Voting Rights Lab. For their part, Democrats have moved in the other direction, pushing to expand ballot access through more mail voting, adding new forms of acceptable identification to vote, and expanding early voting. This year, 28 laws in 17 states and Washington, D.C., have been signed into law that will expand access to voting, according to the Voting Rights Lab. The rights shift to, to smaller steps is clear in Georgia and Florida, two battleground states that passed broad new laws a couple of years ago. This year, Georgia Republicans focused narrowly on banning outside funding for election offices. Florida passed a law that, among other provisions, puts new restrictions on voter registration groups. While the downshift in ambitions is strategic, signs also suggest that Republicans have become wary of some types of restrictions. Party leaders have increasingly, have increasingly warned that its opposition to mail and early voting is discouraging Republican voters from casting ballots and costing the party races. Even Mr. Trump has been urging voters to cast ballots by mail, although he still suggests falsely that the system is rigged to favor Democrats. In, in, Idaho, in, in Idaho and South Dakota this year, Republicans joined with Democrats to vote down bills that would have effectively ended no-excuse absentee voting. Familiar forces team up. Ms. Mitchell, who played a central role in Mr. Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election, has become a leading force in the right-wing coalition. Last year, her election integrity network corralled thousands of activists to act as poll watchers and monitors in midterm elections. Now, Ms. Mitchell is working to turn those people into an enduring base of activists lobbying state lawmakers. Ms. Mitchell's network convenes regular meetings of lawyers, policy advocates, political operatives, and state-level activists, some of whom promote the most far-fetched theories about hacked voting machines. The coalition draws from a list of well-funded advocacy groups, the Honest Elections Project, which is backed by the 85 Fund, a nonprofit affiliated with the conservative activist Leonard Leo. The Election Transparency Initiative, a project tied to Richard, a Richard Uline, a shipping supply magnet and Republican megadonor, and the Foundation for Government Accountability, which has received funding from both the 85 Fund and Mr. Uline's foundation. The conservative side of the spectrum is largely playing catch-up to the left, which has had an extremely well-organized, well-funded effort to push their progressive voting policies, said Jason Sneed, the executive director of the Honest Elections Project. Ms. Mitchell's priorities for the group include a mix of long-time proposals, such as ending same-day voter registration, and more recent fixations, like shortening early voting and prohibiting, prohibiting election offices from accepting private donations, known in some circles as Zuckerbucks, after the grants after the grants a nonprofit backed by Mark Zuckerberg gave to local election offices in 2020. Some proposals buy into election conspiracy theories, such as pressing state election officials to withdraw from a once obscure multi-state database of voter roll information. The database, known as ERIC, was long considered an important security tool and enjoyed widespread bipartisan support. But after theories spread claiming the system was part of a liberal plot to steal elections, activists in Ms. Mitchell's network and others lobbied Republicans to turn against it. Seven states have pulled out of the system. Brendan Fisher, a deputy executive, a deputy executive, 
executive director of Documented, said such advocacy reflected the priorities of donors and leaders. These measures were not just a response to organic grassroots activism, but rather shaped and promoted by a cadre of dark money groups, he said. A new player. Until recently, the Foundation for Government Accountability was best known as a Florida-based think tank that focused nearly all of its lobbying on seeking to dismantle government assistance programs like Medicaid, food stamps, and other welfare initiatives. But in early 2021, the group added election issues to its portfolio. A few months later, when Republican secretaries of state gathered at the Conrad Hotel in Washington, D.C. for their annual conference, the foundation was the only outside organization with a speaking slot at every panel. By 2022, the group's fingerprints were on new voting legislation in Missouri, where its policy advisors assisted in crafting a voting bill that created strict new photo identification requirements, banned drop boxes and outside funding of elections, and limited third parties from engaging in voter registration. The bill also added two weeks of early voting, but in a provision apparently intended to discourage a legal challenge, those weeks would be revoked if a court struck down the new voter ID requirements. Jay Ashcroft, the Republican Secretary of State of Missouri, said he had worked with the foundation on ideas and asked for help in creating legislative language. But when it came time to draft the bill, Mr. Ashcroft added, FGA wasn't there. It was senators. It was representatives. By 2023, the group did explicitly write the right language. In Arkansas, for example, the legislature passed a bill, and in April, the, gov the governor signed it into law, establishing new rules for poll watchers. New rules for poll watchers. The legislation's language was nearly identical to model legislation drafted by the foundation months earlier. The group says its, its success in those states has been replicated across the country. In its 2022 annual report, it claims to have been involved in passing 70 election integrity policy wins across 19 states in 2022. That tally represents the success of radical incrementalism over seismic shifts, Taryn Bragdon, the foundation's chief executive, said in a statement. Our view is, is it's better to understand what, what is possible and pursue reforms that can get across the finish line with broad buy-in from voters and legislators, he said. Seizing on a new issue. Another measure of the network's influence is the rising opposition to ranked-choice voting, which allows voters to pick more than one candidate. Advocates for the system believe it gives voters more options and discourages political polarization. But when reliably Republican Alaska was poised to elect its first Democratic member of Congress in nearly 50 years through ranked choice voting, the network of think tanks and organizations on the right sought to turn lawmakers against the process. The Foundation for Government Accountability and the Honest Elections Project each published reports criticizing ranked choice voting as confusing and undermining voter confidence. The Honest Elections Project began a Stop RCV Coalition. In, January, in a January meeting of Ms. Mitchell's legislative working group, Lynn Taylor, the president of the Virginia Institute for Public Policy, told activists in states across the country to connect with the foundation for model legislation that would ban ranked choice voting, according to notes from the meeting. In March, Advocates with Opportunity Solutions Project, 
the nonprofit arm of the foundation, testified in favor of ranked choice voting bans in Texas, South Dakota, and Idaho. Their coordinated efforts appear to have worked. At the end of 2022, only two states, Tennessee and Florida, had introduced legislation to ban ranked choice voting. Now, roughly four months into 2023, Republicans have introduced bans in six states. Montana, Idaho, and South Dakota have each signed one into law. This next article is called Biden said he'd veer from Trump on immigration. The reality is more complicated. Surges of migrants have shaped President Biden's policies at the border in ways that few of his allies imagined when he was running for president. In his final debate with Donald J. Trump on October 22, 2020, Joseph R. Biden Jr., then a candidate, excoriated his arrival for radically undermining America's decades-long tradition of welcoming people who seek asylum at the country's borders. This is the first president in the history of the United States of America that anybody seeking asylum has to do it in another country, Mr. Biden said, referring to one of hundreds of Trump-era immigration policies aimed at shutting down the border. Yet on Thursday, Mr. Biden's administration is expected to impose a very similar restriction on asylum seekers by quickly rejecting claims for most people who cross the border but do not seek refuge in Mexico first. Like Mr. Trump's policy, the new approach is likely to lead to many migrants being deported in a swift process that critics say deprives them of due process. After nearly two and a half years in office, Mr. Biden has struggled to settle on an approach to immigration that satisfies his critics on the right or the left. In some cases, he has embraced his predecessor's use of aggressive measures aimed at keeping a surge of migrants at bay along the southern border. Still, Republicans have attacked him for policies that make it easier to immigrate to the United States, even as human rights groups and migrant activists assail his embrace of tougher measures designed to keep people out. The announcement of the tough new approach to asylum, which immigration activists have vowed to challenge in court, comes as Mr. Biden's administration prepares to end another Trump-era policy known as Title 42 which has effectively kept the border closed to asylum seekers since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic three years ago. The president has taken some steps aimed at welcoming migrants and ending what he once called the moral and national shame of Mr. Trump's immigration policies. He has vowed never to separate families at the border, as Mr. Trump did in the summer of 2018, and his administration has moved to let in more migrants from places like Ukraine, Afghanistan, and several Central American countries. On the first day of his administration, Mr. Biden introduced legislation that would provide a path to citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants, protect immigrants, protect so-called dreamers, and expand visas for workers, families, and visitors. Republicans uniformly opposed the, propose, opposed the proposal, which has gone nowhere. Conservative judges, egged on by Republican governors and lawmakers, have also blocked other immigration efforts by the administration. But surges of migrants displaced by political and economic turmoil, and the Republican Party's use of those images to foster a narrative that the border is out of control, 
have shaped Mr. Biden's immigration policies in ways that few of his allies imagined when he was running for president. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heidi Altman, the the policy director at the Liberal National Immigrant Justice Center, said the Biden administration has made some important steps toward more humane policies for migrants, but she criticized what she called a web of policies similar to Mr. Trump's. These are policies designed to make it difficult or impossible for people in need of safety to get it, and even punish them for trying, she said. The administration does not shy away from its use of tough rules, arguing that the best way to discourage migrants from making the dangerous trek to the border is to ensure there are consequences for crossing illegally. In a memo distributed to reporters last week, the White House proudly summarized its approach to the sensitive topic. The Biden-Harris administration's plan is rooted in enforcement, the memo said, adding that the effort also entails deterrence and diplomacy with other countries. Immigration officials are quick to point out that they have paired tougher enforcement with new opportunities for migrants, including programs that allow migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti to apply for a special two-year entry program rather than take their chances by crossing the border. After being blocked by the courts, the administration eventually ended a Trump administration policy called Remain in Mexico, which forced asylum seekers to wait in dangerous conditions in Mexico while their cases were processed in the United States. White House officials flatly reject the notion that Mr. Biden's immigration agenda is similar to Mr. Trump's. They noted that on Monday, Mr. Biden threatened to veto House Republican legislation that would restore some of the former president's harshest ideas, including construction of a border wall. Donald Trump demanded more money for an ineffective border wall that couldn't even withstand heavy winds, let alone sophisticated criminal smuggling networks, said Abdullah Hassan, a White House spokesman. President Biden is urging Congress to provide for more asylum officers, immigration judges, and border security technology. Still, advocates for migrants and some Democrats say the president and his team have moved far too slowly to dismantle Mr. Trump's harsh policies. They point to, among other things, a decision by the former president to require migrants who were allowed to seek asylum to be interviewed immediately after being captured, while still in Border Patrol custody. That decision prevented many migrants from having the time to prepare their case and get a lawyer, activists said at the time. The number of migrants approved for asylum plummeted, exactly the results that Trump administration officials wanted. Now Mr. Biden's administration is taking a similar approach to speeding up deportation of migrants at the border. People who seek asylum are now interviewed by phone within hours of being moved into Border Patrol custody. If they are denied asylum, many are deported back to Mexico or to their home countries within hours, according to immigration lawyers. Administration officials note that they have added many phone booths to Border Patrol facilities and now provide lists of pro bono attorneys to migrants. Unlike under the policy under Mr. Trump, asylum interviews are not conducted by Border Patrol officers. 
One of the most draconian policies adopted by Mr. Trump was the use of the public health rule known as Title 42, which effectively closed the border to most asylum seekers by arguing that the action was needed to prevent the spread of COVID-19 at the start of the pandemic. When Mr. Trump used Title 42 powers at the start of the pandemic in 2020, it was part of a broader effort by Stephen Miller, the architect of, of the administration's immigration agenda, to achieve his real goal the effective end of America's seven-decade asylum system. Critics assailed the move move at the time. Amnesty International accused Mr. Trump's administration of weaponizing COVID-19 to achieve the policy objective it sought from day one, shutting the border. Democrats vowed to reverse the policy immediately. But But when he took office a year later, Mr. Biden did no such thing. He argued that it was up to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which continued to extend the public health emergency that allowed Title 42 to be invoked. After the CDC said Title 42 was no longer needed in April 2022, the administration moved to end it, but it was blocked by conservative judges. The administration then expanded the use of Title 42 in October before being allowed by the courts to end it for good this week. But that is too little too late to convince advocates that the Biden administration is in the right place. People seeking safety now need access to asylum, and U.S. laws afford them that right, Ms. Altman said. The administration is eviscerating that access, in the same vein as the Trump administration. This next article is called, Corporate Giants Buy Up Primary Care Practices at Rapid Pace. Large health insurers and other companies are especially keen on doctors' groups that care for patients in private Medicare plans. It's no surprise that that the shortage of primary care doctors, who are critically important to the health of Americans, is getting worse. They practice in one of medicine's lowest-paid, least glamorous fields. Most are overworked, seeing as many as 30 people a day. Figuring out when a sore throat is a strep infection or managing a patient's chronic diabetes. So why are multi-billion dollar corporations, particularly giant health insurers, gobbling up primary care practices? CVS Health, with its sprawling pharmacy business and ownership of the major insurer, Atena, paid roughly $11 billion to buy Oak Street Health, a fast-growing chain of primary care centers that employs doctors in 21 states. And Amazon's bold purchase of One Medical, another large doctor's group, for nearly $4 billion, is another such move. The appeal is simple. Despite their lowly status, primary care doctors oversee vast numbers of patients who bring business and profits to a hospital system, a health insurer, or a pharmacy outfit eyeing expansion. And there's an added lure. The growing privatization of Medicare The federal health insurance program for older Americans means that more than half of its 60 million beneficiaries have signed up for policies with private insurers under the Medicare Advantage program. The federal government is now paying those insurers $400 billion a year. That's the big pot of money everyone is aiming at, said Aaron C. Fuse-Brown, director of the Center for Law, Health, and Society at Georgia State University and an author of a New England Journal of Medicine article about corporate investment in primary care. 
It's a one-stop shop for all your healthcare dollars, she said. Many doctors say they are becoming mere employees. We've seen this loss of autonomy, said Dr. Dan Moore, who recently decided to start his own practice in Henrico, Virginia, to have more say in caring for his patients. You don't become a physician to spend an average of seven minutes with a patient, he said. The absorption of doctor practices is part of a vast, accelerating consolidation of medical care, leaving patients in the hands of a shrinking number of giant companies or hospital groups. Many already were the patients Many already were the patients' insurers and controlled the distribution of medicines through ownership of drugstore chains or pharmacy benefit managers. But now, nearly 7 in 10 of all doctors are either employed by a hospital or a corporation, according to a recent analysis from the Physicians Advocacy Institute. The companies say these new arrangements will bring better, more coordinated care for patients, but some experts warn the consolidation will lead to higher prices and systems driven by the quest for profits, not patients' as welfare. Insurers say their purchase of medical practices is a step toward what is called value-based care, with the insurer and the doctor paid a flat fee to care for an individual patient. The fixed payment acts as a financial incentive to keep patients healthy, provide more access to early care, and reduce possible and reduce hospital admissions and expensive visits to specialists. The companies say they favor the fixed fees over the existing system that pays doctors and hospitals for every test and treatment, encouraging doctors to order too many procedures. Under Medicare Advantage, doctors often share profits with insurers if the doctors take on the financial risk of a patient's care, earning more if they can save on treatment. Instead of receiving a few hundred dollars for an office visit, a primary care doctor Primary care doctors can be paid as much as $14,000 a year to manage a single patient. But experts warn these major acquisitions threaten the personal nature of the doctor-patient relationship, especially if the parent company has the authority to dictate limits on services from the first office visit to extended hospital stays. Once enrolled, these new customers can be steered toward chains of related businesses like a CVS drugstore or Amazon's online pharmacy. United Health Group is a sprawling example of consolidated services. It owns the major insurer, insurer that has nearly 50 million customers in the United States and oversees its ever-expanding subsidiary, Optum, which has, which has bought up networks of doctors and medical sites. Optum can send patients from one of its roughly 70,000 doctors to one of its urgent care or surgery centers. <clears throat> Senator, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, is urging the Federal Trade Commission to take a closer look at some of these large deals, which regulators have so far not blocked on antitrust grounds. I fear that the acquisition of thousands of independent providers by a few massive healthcare mega conglomerates could reduce competition on a local or national basis, hurting patients and increasing healthcare costs, she wrote to regulators in March. This consolidation of medical care may also run afoul of state laws that prohibit what is called corporate medicine. Such statutes prevent a company that employs doctors from interfering with patient treatment. And experts warn of the potential harm to patients when corporate management seeks to control costs through Byzantine systems requiring prior authorization to receive care. For example, Kaiser, Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente, 
For example, Kaiser, per, per, <laughs> Kaiser Permanente, the giant, nonprofit, the giant nonprofit health plan that also owns physician groups, settled a malpractice, a malpractice case for nearly $2.9 million last year with the family of Ken Flack, a former tennis player who contracted pneumonia and died from sepsis after a Kaiser nurse and doctor would not send him for an in-person visit or to the emergency room, despite the urgent pleading of his wife. Kaiser said medical decisions are made by its providers in consultation with their patients and said its deepest sympathy remains with the Flack family. Doctors also chafe at oversights that the Doctors also chafe at oversight that does not benefit patients. They're trying to run it like a business, but it's not a business, said Dr. Beth Kozak, an internal medicine doctor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Her doctor's group has teamed up with Agilon Health, an investor-owned company, to work with Medicare Advantage plans. Dr. Kozak said she has to work longer hours not to provide better care, but to supply additional diagnosis for patients, which increases federal reimbursements under the Medicare Advantage program. It's not because I'm giving better patient care, she said. It's all tied to the billing. The corporate consumption of medical care keeps growing. Walgreens, Walgreens Boots Alliance, one of the largest U.S. pharmacy operations, spent $5 million for a majority stake in Village MD, a primary care group, and teamed with Cigna to buy another medical group for nearly $9 billion. And short of an outright purchase, United Health is partnering with Walmart to offer care to older patients. <clears throat> in, in promoting the benefits of buying Oak Street Clinics to investors, Karen S. Lynch, the chief executive of CVS Health, said primary care doctors lower medical costs. Primary care drives patient engagement and positive clinical outcomes, she said. Many of these companies are building chains of clinics. On a recent tour of an Oak Street clinic in Bushwick, one of 16 centers opened since October 2020 in New York City. Patients were typically seen from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., with a nurse available after hours to field questions. Ann Greiner, the chief executive of the Primary Care Collaborative, a nonprofit group, defended the recent forays by private companies into this field of healthcare, saying, saying they are infusing practices with sorely needed funds and may improve access to care for people in underserved areas. The salaries of the folks in those arrangements are higher, she said. They are providing more comprehensive care in many of those arrangements. They are providing more tech and more team-based care. That's all investment. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. But these deals also risk shifting the balance from quality treatment to profits, she said. In recent years, some have invoked the laws banning corporate medicine to challenge these large-scale private operations. Envision Healthcare, a private equity-backed company that employs emergency room doctors, is being sued in California by a unit of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, a professional group that supports independent practices, accusing it of violating that state's provisions. 
Envision exercises profound and pervasive direct and indirect control and or influence over a physician's practice of medicine, according to the lawsuit. The suit maintains that Envision controls the doctor's billing and establishes medical protocols. While Envision would not comment on the litigation, it said it, it follows an operating structure that is common across the healthcare sector and widely used by nonprofit, privately held, and public groups, as well as hospitals and insurers. The big insurers find doctors' groups particularly attractive, although many have reported sizable losses. The acquisition of Oak Street, which has lost more than $1 billion over the last three years, could help CVS's Medicare Advantage plans improve their quality or star ratings and increase payments for one of its plans. Even small numbers of patients can translate into significant revenue. One medical, the company Amazon owns, is best known for sleek clinics. The company scooped up a practice specializing in Medicare Advantage. Only about 5% of One Medical's 836,000 members are enrolled in that federal program, but roughly half of its revenue comes from that tiny slice of patients, according to its 2022 financial statements. Regulators are already flagging questionable methods employed by some practices. In November 2021, Oak Street disclosed that the Justice Department was investigating sales ploys like free trips to its clinics and payment of insurance agents for, refer- for, for referrals. One doctor at a center described recruiting patients with gift cards, swag, and goodie bags, according to a shareholder lawsuit against Oak Street. The lawsuit detailed concerns that doctors were inflating the payments from the federal government by overstating how sick their patients were. Oak Street says it has, n- it has not been accused of any wrongdoing by the Justice Department and says the lawsuit is without merit. These private Medicare Advantage plans have been heavily criticized for racking up enormous profits by inflating costs and exaggerating patients' illnesses to charge the government more than they should. Under new rules, the Biden administration would eliminate some of the most problematic, overused diagnoses, and doctors and insurers could earn less. But other pathways to profit also explain why corporations covet these deals. Unlike the caps on insurers' insurers money-making, where a Medicare Advantage insurer has to spend at least 85 cents of every dollar on patient care, there are no limits to how much profit these these doctor practices and pharmacy chains can make. It may be too soon to determine whether consolidated care will improve patients' health. So far, when you look across the industry, the record of these acquisitions has been mixed, said Dr. Sakin Sakin H. Jane, the chief executive of Scan Group, a nonprofit based in Long Beach, California, that offers Medicare Advantage plans. And the investments may not halt the rapid disappearance of the doctor still sought by so many people for ordinary care, including a recent report showing fewer medical school graduates going into the field. We're dealing with incredible levels of burnout within the profession, said Dr. Max Cohen, who practices near Portland, Oregon. Since the pandemic, his low-income patients have become much sicker, he said, with the level of illness through the roof. This next article is called, In Norway, the Electric Vehicle Future Has Already Arrived. 
About 80% of new cars sold in Norway are battery-powered. As a result, the air is cleaner, the streets are quieter, and the grid hasn't collapsed. But problems with unreliable chargers persist. About 110 miles south of Oslo, along a highway lined with pine and birch trees, a shiny fueling station offers a glimpse of a future where electric vehicles rule. Chargers far outnumber gasoline pumps at the service area operated by Circle K, a retail chain that got its start in Texas. During summer weekends, when Oslo residents flee to country cottages, the line to recharge sometimes backs up down the off-ramp. Merritt Bergsland, who works at the store, has had to learn how to help frustrated customers connect to chargers, in addition to her regular duties flipping burgers and and ringing up purchases of salty licorice, a popular treat. Sometimes we have to give them a coffee to calm down, she said. Last year, 80% of new car sales in Norway were electric, putting the country at the vanguard of the shift to battery-powered mobility. It has also turned Norway into an observatory for figuring out what the electric vehicle revolution might mean for the environment, workers, and life in general. The country will end the sales of internal combustion engine cars in 2025. Norway's experience suggests that electric vehicles bring benefits without the dire consequences predicted by some critics. There are problems, of course, including unreliable chargers and long waits during periods of high demand. Auto dealers and retailers have had to adapt. The switch has has reordered the auto industry, making Tesla the best-selling brand and marginalizing established car makers like Renault and Fiat. But the air in Oslo, Norway's capital, is measurably cleaner. The city is also quieter as as noisier gasoline and diesel vehicles are scrapped. Oslo's greenhouse gas emissions have fallen 30% since 2009. Yet there has not been mass unemployment among gas station workers, and and the electrical grid has not collapsed. Some lawmakers and corporate executives portray the fight against climate change as requiring grim, grim sacrifice. With EVs, it's not like that, said Christina Bu, Secretary General of Norwegian EV Association, which represents owners. It's actually something that people embrace. Norway began promoting electric vehicles in the 1990s to support Think, a homegrown electric vehicle startup that Ford Motor owned for a few years. Battery-powered vehicles were exempted from value-added and import taxes and from highway tolls. The government also subsidized the construction of fast charging stations, crucial in a country nearly as big as California, with just 5.5 million people. The combination of incentives and ubiquitous ubiquitous charging took away all the friction factors, said Jim Rowan, the chief executive of Volvo Cars, based in neighboring Sweden. The policies put Norway more than a decade ahead of the United States. The Biden administration aims for 50% of new vehicle sales to be electric by 2030, a milestone Norway passed in 2019. A few feet from a six-lane highway that skirts Oslo's waterfront, metal pipes jut from the roof of a prefabricated shed. The building measures pollution from the traffic zooming by, a stone's throw from a bicycle path and a marina. Levels of nitrogen, levels of nitrogen oxides, byproducts of burning gasoline and diesel that cause smog 
asthma, and other ailments have fallen sharply as electric vehicle ownership has risen. We are on the verge of solving the, the Knox problem, said Tobias Wolf, Oslo's chief, chief engineer for air quality, referring to nitrogen oxides. But there is still a problem where the rubber meets the road. Oslo's air has unhealthy levels of microscopic particles generated partly by the abrasion of tires and asphalt. Electric vehicles, which account for about one-third of the registered vehicles in the city, but a higher proportion of traffic may even aggravate that problem. They're really, they're really a lot heavier than, than internal combustion engine cars, and that means they are causing more abrasion, said Mr. Wolf, who, like many Oslo residents, prefers to get around by bicycle. Another persistent problem, apartment residents say finding a place to plug in their cars remains a challenge. In the basement of an Oslo restaurant recently, local lawmakers and residents gathered to discuss the issue. Siren Helvin Stav, Oslo's vice mayor for the environment and transport, said the event that the city wants to ins- said at the event that the city wants to install more public chargers, but also reduce the number of cars by a third to make streets safer and free space for walking and cycling. The goal is to cut emissions, which is why EVs are so important but also to make the city better to live in, Ms. Stav, a member of the Green Party, said in an interview later. Electric vehicles are part of a broader plan by Oslo to reduce its carbon dioxide emissions to almost zero by 2030. All city buses will be electric by the end of the year. Oslo is also targeting construction, the source of more than a quarter of its greenhouse gas emissions. Contractors bidding on public projects have a better chance of winning if they use equipment that runs on electricity or biofuels. At a park in a working-class Oslo neighborhood last month, an excavator scooped out earth for a decorative pond. A thick cable connected the excavator to a power source, driving its electric motor. Later, an electric dump truck hauled away the soil. Normally, the crew would have been required to stop working when the children in a nearby kindergarten napped but the electric equipment was quiet enough that work could continue. Children in Norway nap outdoors, weather permitting. Espen Haug, who manages city construction projects, said he was surprised at how quickly contractors substituted hard-to-find electric equipment for diesel machinery. Some projects that we thought were impossible or or very difficult to do zero emission, we still got the tender for zero emission, he said. Ms. Stav acknowledged what she called the hypocrisy of Norway's drive to reduce greenhouse gases while producing lots of oil and gas. Fossil fuel exports generated revenue of $180 billion last year. We're exporting that pollution, said Ms. Stav, or Ms. Stav said, noting that her party has called for oil and gas production to be phased out by 2035. But Norway's government has not pulled back on oil and gas production. We have several fields in production or under development, providing energy security to Europe, Amund Vik, state secretary in the Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, said in a statement. Elsewhere, Norway's power grid has held up fine, even with more demand for electricity. It helps that the country has abundant hydropower. Even so, electric vehicles have increased the demand for electricity modestly, according to calculations by the EV Association, and most owners are charging cars at night when demand is lower and power is cheaper. Elvia, which supplies electricity to Oslo and the surrounding area, 
has had to install new substations and transformers and transformers in some places, said Anne Nysather, the company's managing director. But, she added, we haven't seen any issue of the grid collapsing. Nor has there been a rise in unemployment among auto mechanics. Electric vehicles don't need oil changes and require less maintenance than gasoline cars, but they still break down. And there are plenty of gasoline cars that will need maintenance for years. Sindre Dronberg, who has worked at a Volkswagen dealership in Oslo since the 1980s, underwent training to serve as electric vehicle batteries. Was it difficult to make the switch? No, he said, as he replaced defective cells in a Volkswagen e-Golf. Electric vehicles are creating jobs in other industries. In Frederikstad, 55 miles of south of Oslo, a former steel plant has become a battery recycling center. Workers, including some who worked at the steel plant, dismantle battery packs, a machine that then shreds the packs to separate plastic, aluminum, and copper to, to separate plastic, aluminum, and copper from a black mass that contains crucial ingredients such as lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and graphite. The factory, owned by Hydrovolt, is the first of several the company plans to build in Europe and the United States. So far, there is not much to recycle, but eventually, recycled batteries could greatly reduce the need for mining. If we can take the active material that is already within the product and create new ones, then we create a shortcut, said Peter Gvarforth, the chief executive of Hydrovolt, a joint venture of the aluminum producer Norsk Hydro and Northvolt, a battery maker. If anyone has to worry about their jobs, it's car dealers. The almost complete disappearance of gasoline and diesel vehicles from showrooms has reordered the industry. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Mahler Mobility Group has long been Norway's biggest auto retailer, with sales last year of $3.7 billion dollars, and dealerships in Sweden and the Baltic countries. Mahler's Oslo outlet is filled with electric Volkswagens like the ID.4 and the ID.Buzz. There are only a few internal and combustion cars. Yet, Tesla is greatly outselling Volkswagen in Norway, grabbing 30% of the market compared to 19% for Volkswagen and its Skoda and Audi brands, according to the Road Information Council. Sales of electric cars from Chinese companies like BYD and Xpeng are also growing. If that pattern repeats itself elsewhere in Europe and in the United States, some established car makers might not survive. Peter Hellman, the chief executive of Mahler Mobility, predicted that traditional brands would, regra- would regain ground because customers trust them and they have extensive service networks. But clearly, he added, Tesla has shaken the industry. Circle K, which bought gas stations that had belonged to a Norwegian government-owned oil company, is using the country to learn how to serve electric car owners in the United States and Europe. The chain, now owned by Elementation Couchetard, a company based near Montreal, has more than 9,000 stores in North America. Guro Stordal, a Circle K executive, 
has the difficult task of developing charging infrastructure that works with dozens of vehicle brands, each with its own software. Electric vehicle owners tend to spend more time at Circle K because charging takes longer than filling a gasoline tank. That's good for food sales, but gasoline remains an important source of revenue. We do see it as an opportunity, Hakon Stickskurd, Circle K's head of global e-mobility, set of electric vehicles. But if we are not cap, but we if we are not capable of grasping those opportunities, it quickly becomes a threat. This next article is called "A Philosopher and a Slaver." but no longer a name on a library. No one disputes that George Berkeley was among Ireland's greatest thinkers, but he was also an unapologetic slaver. Now, Trinity College, Dublin, is taking his name off of one of its buildings. Trinity College, Dublin, has decided to seek a new name for its central library, the Berkeley, after concluding that the alumnus it honors, the 18th century philosopher George Berkeley, owned slaves in colonial Rhode Island, and wrote pamphlets supportive of slavery. A fellow of Trinity and the former librarian there, Berkeley is regarded by academics as one of the most influential thinkers of the early modern period. Some view his philosophical and scientific ideas on perception and reality as foreshadowing the work of Albert Einstein. But last month, the governing board of Trinity, Ireland's oldest university, announced that it had voted to dename the library after months of research and consultation by a group established to review problematic legacies. The group based its recommendations on an, ana on an analysis of historical records already in the public domain, showing that Berkeley had purchased several enslaved people for a, for a plantation that he operated while living in Rhode Island from 1729 to 1732. Already a noted scholar, Berkeley went to America with plans to use wealth from the plantation, as well as public donations, to open a school in Bermuda that would take Native American children, by force if need be, and convert them to Christianity. His plans never materialized, however, and Berkeley donated his farm, along with its enslaved people, to Yale University before returning to Britain and then Ireland, where he eventually became the Anglican Church's Lord Bishop of Cloyne. Trinity College's provost, Linda Doyle, said that though Berkeley's name was being removed from the library, his intellectual legacy remained intact. Berkeley, she noted, remains recognized globally as one of the most brilliant thinkers to emerge from Ireland, and she said this, his, philosoph his philosophical and scientific theories would continue to be taught at the college. George Berkeley's enormous contribution to philosophical thought is not in question, Dr. Doyle said in a statement. However, it is also clear that he was born an owner of enslaved people and a theorist of slavery and racial discrimination, which is in clear conflict with Trinity's core values. The library is not Berkeley's own, only namesake. The University of California, Berkeley, was also named for the philosopher. According to the Berkeley Historical Society, Trustees of the then-private college settled on naming it after him in 1866, inspired in part by his missionary zeal and a poem he wrote. Westward the course of empire takes its way. 
The four first acts already passed. A fifth shall close the drama with the day. Time's noblest offspring is the last. Several years ago, Berkeley, re- Berkeley renamed two buildings dedicated to former faculty members tarnished by racism. But there has been no serious discussion at the university of changing his own name, of changing its own name. We acknowledge that the university's founders chose to name their new town and campus after an individual whose views warrant no honor or commemoration, said a spokesman for the school, Dan, Dan Mogulov. But a century and a half later, he said, Berkeley has come to embody and represent very different values and perspectives. In Ireland, Trinity's formal re-examination of Berkeley's legacy began last year after students at the college started a campaign of lobbying and protests. The president of the student union, Gabby Fulham, said the university's increasingly diverse students and staff could no longer accept the main library being named after a slave owner. It's a library for all the college community, and it's a big physical presence, she said. It looms over the center of the campus. But, Mrs. Fulham, but, Ms. Fulham said, no one is saying we should take Berkeley off the syllabus. And students still will still encounter Berkeley in the form of a 19th century stained glass window commemorating his life in the college chapel. The school decided to keep the window in place, but add information about, but add information about the controversy, adopting a so-called retain-and-explain approach. Its historical name notwithstanding, the library is a modernist concrete structure that opened in 1967 and is one of Dublin's prime examples of brutalist architecture. For its first 11 years, it was known as the New Library to distinguish it from Trinity's more famous Old Library. That elegant 18th century building houses the famous Long Room, one of Ireland's leading tourist attractions, and is home to the medieval Book of Kells. With the, with the decision to dename the Berkeley, the school will once again need to figure out what to call it. One choice is off the table. It cannot revert to the new library, since two even newer ones have been built in the interim. Phil Mullen, who in 2020 was appointed the university's first assistant, assistant professor of black studies, is among those welcoming the name change. Berkeley, she said, should not be excused as merely reflecting the views of his time. A lot of other individuals openly opposed slavery then. Then, Dr. Mullen said, Berkeley was not an, in- was not an innocent in this way. There were other people who visited him, Quakers, Moravians, Jews, who felt differently about slavery and who would have argued with Berkeley about his position. Instead, Dr. Mullen said, it was clear that he had been a willing practitioner of slavery who baptized his slaves not only for the sake of their souls, but, as he wrote in 1725, because he believed it would make them more obedient to their masters. The college's legacy group said that it had received 93 submissions from students, staff members, and the public about the library name. A slim majority, 47, supported changing it, 16 called for retaining it, and the others staked a middle ground. Most of those who supported keeping the the name argued that Berkeley's views reflected his time, or that it would be wrong to remove the name of one of Ireland's greatest thinkers. David McConnell, a former vice provost of the college, 
argued for the retain and explain approach. Berkeley draws attention to him because he, he was a very great scholar, and it's important that people know about him. And in the case of the students today, maybe be inspired by him, Professor McConnell said. If the name isn't up there on the library, he will fade away and be known only to people who study philosophy. The chairman of the group that recommended renaming the library, Professor, Professor, Professor Ian O'Sullivan, said its work had been influenced by other universities facing similar issues. Harvard Medical School, for example, voted in 2020 to rename an academic society named for Oliver Wendell, Oliver Wendell Holmes. The 19th century physician and writer was an early promoter of racial eugenics and successfully pushed for the removal of the first black students admitted to the school. In 2016, Harvard Law School voted to stop using the heraldic shield of the Royal, of the Royal family because Isaac Royal Jr., a major 18th century donor to the college, had derived his wealth from slavery. Last year, the physics department of Trinity College, Dublin, decided to remove the name of the renowned Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger from one of its lecture halls. Schrödinger worked and taught at the college in the 1940s, but was recently revealed to have been a serial abuser of teenage girls. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 9th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Peter Shea. Thank you for listening.